Hey, everybody. Welcome to Meta Perspective, where we go meta on subject, subjects like insight, awakening, and reality. And today we have a special guest, and that is Brad Warner, the author of Hardcore Zen. Welcome, Brad. Hi. I'm glad to be here. And you're, you're also the author of uh, actually a ton of books. The, I'm most familiar with the Hardcore Zen book. Um, but we're, we're going to circle back around to that. So uh, just, just for people listening, um, give, a, give a short introduction. Who's Brad Warner? Okay, well, I was, uh, let's see, I, I'm so used to telling the story that I, 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 I don't know, I can almost do it on autopilot because I've done it so often. But I was, uh, I, I discovered Zen in the early 80s when I was the bass player of a hardcore punk band and the reason I'd gotten into the whole hardcore punk thing was basically the same reason I got into Zen which was a kind of a search for something true and to me to my mind because punk rock was trying to to tell the truth about what the world was like and what you know what was going on I I, f I felt like uh, Zen was the the most punk rock it was like it was like the the idea of punk rock taken to its ultimate level of just not not just questioning the government and society, but questioning who am I really? You know, what what is what is at the basis of society is 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 uh, is me, you know, and and having to and trying to figure that out. So uh, ended up going to Japan uh, after I had done a Zen practice for about ten years in America, and I went to Japan mainly to just get a job, and ended up working. Well, I worked as an English teacher for a year, and then I worked in a company called Tsuburaya Productions, which is Eiji Tsuburaya was the guy, one of the creators of Godzilla. Uh, there's, there's several people involved in, in the creation of Godzilla, but basically the company he founded did, uh, they didn't have the rights to Godzilla, but they basically did Godzilla type stuff. There was a TV series called Ultraman, which is uh, yeah. the, the Power Rangers are basically an Ultraman ripoff, but Ultraman was a gigantic superhero who fought gigantic monsters and they're all played by guys in rubber monster costumes and stuff, you know, on miniature sets. And uh, I, I did, uh, I worked for that company for I think a total of 15 years, but during the time I was working for them in Tokyo, I found a, a Zen teacher over there named Gudo Nishijima, who had translated this uh, book called Shobogenzo, which is one of the great classics of uh, Zen literature. And he was, his was the second full English translation that ever existed, and the first full English translation translation uh, had been out of print for years by the time my teachers came out so for a while his was the only complete translation of the book available uh, so he was a pretty important guy in that in that scene but he was also a very ordinary sort of humble person well I wouldn't say he's humble but he was he was very uh, accessible uh, and uh, I, uh, I studied with him and he decided he wanted to make me a, a so-called Zen master in quotes uh, and uh, a, a teacher in my own right. That's all that really means. So we did a ceremony and uh, came back to the U.S. And I wrote a well, I wrote a book about uh, Zen called Hardcore Zen, which you talked about, and came back to the United States. Uh, wrote seven more books about Zen, and uh, I travel around to leading Zen retreats and and teaching people to to uh, meditate. I don't know. That's the short version. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and in some of your videos and, and for people listening, you got to check out, uh, you got to check out Brad's YouTube channel. Uh, it's awesome. It's a great channel. There's a lot of great videos that you do and, uh, you know, your readings from some of the books or you're just covering really interesting topics from like a Zen perspective, which I think is really cool. Um, so oh, actually, you know, in, in some of your videos, you refer to, um, one of your teachers, I think Tim, right. Is that your first teacher? Yeah. Yeah, Tim McCarthy is his name. Yeah, is he is he like on the scene? Is he around or he he sort of uh, hides himself? You know, he's uh, he's out there in Ohio, and last I heard, he was still had a little group that he met with. I, I once asked him if he minded me mentioning him so much, and he's like, "Oh, it doesn't matter." You know, every every once in a while, somebody shows up who's. Uh, because they read one of my books and they show up at one of his uh, retreats or something. But uh, yeah, he's really underground. He's always been, and he's even, even with the publicity I've given him, he still manages to, to hide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, we're talking about Zen here. Um, actually 
um, early on in my um, journey, if you want to call it that, I, I was very influenced by a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shun, Shunryu Suzuki. Um, so I actually started out kind of in that in that world with Zen and Chan and stuff. Um, but for for people listening, uh, you know what what kind of Zen did you practice in? Well, uh, it's it's the Soto school within Zen Buddhism, and it was not not started by Dogen, but Dogen is usually the guy who's uh, mentioned as the the main popularizer of it. So he was a, a 13th century in, in the 1200s, he went over to China. He's a, he's a Japanese guy. He was a Japanese guy, went over to China and studied in this very, what was in China, very minor form of Zen Buddhism called Soto. And uh, it's their, their idea in, in most, in, in the Rinzai form of Zen Buddhism. I know this, get, this all gets confusing to people who aren't familiar with it, but the idea is you do your meditation practice in order to have an experience uh, of, of enlightenment, Satori or Kensho or something like that. And uh, Dogen, who started when he was quite young, must have had those experiences. I'm, I'm sure he did, but he never felt that they were the, the final thing. They weren't what he was really looking for. And he discovered this teacher in China who taught a different way, which is that sitting zazen itself is enlightenment, uh, is, is the direct, so it's, it's not a special experience that you have at the end of the, the rainbow or the end of the road. It's this uh, ongoing thing. It, it is your real life in this moment. And he taught a style of, of zazen called shikantaza which means just sitting and the the emphasis on the word just because the the chinese characters that are used to express it well, sometimes when people hear just sitting in english they think it means like just sitting but it means just sitting you know you're doing you're trying to uh, do this practice where where your seated meditation practice is not about anything else but just sitting still and, and, and being fully invested in sitting still, which is a, you know, which might sound like, oh, I sit still all the time, it's nothing. But if you actually get fully invested in sitting still, it's a, it, there's a lot that you can learn that way. And that's what that, that's the style that I got involved in. Yeah, and again, for people listening, what, how would you describe uh, Zazen? Well, Zazen is, I mean, it's a physical, uh, practice. So you're actually sitting in a, in a specific way, usually with your legs crossed, although there are, there are ways to do it if your legs can't handle uh, crossing them in, the, in this traditional fashion. But the main thing is you're trying to find a position where your spine uh, is balanced and upright uh, without any support, uh, which is easier to do sitting directly on a cushion than it is on a chair or anything else, because the chair tends to throw your balance off. But so, so you're doing this kind of I think it's almost like a balance pose in yoga, but it's a it's a funny balance pose in that you're sitting down, uh, you know. So you're not you know standing on one leg or something, but you're trying to establish physical balance and trying as much as possible to stay uh, within that that physical balance while you sit. And and as far as what your mind does there's no special exercise you're trying to do. You're just trying to kind of concentrate on maintaining this bodily position. If you can even say you're concentrating on anything and letting all thoughts just kind of pass by. So you don't, you don't worry if, uh, if you're worrying, you know, if you're, if you're having a, one of those days when there's a lot going on in your mind, that doesn't, that doesn't mean you're doing bad zazen practice. You're just you're you're still doing the zazen practice, but you're trying as much as possible to let that stuff pass and keep uh, keep your posture centered where it is. Uh, so that's that's what zazen is. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, you teach um, you continue to teach zazen. Do you teach the the soto version? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the only one I really know, and that's that's what I teach. So I, I just came back. Uh, I went uh, for the entire month of September. I was over in Europe doing retreats and things. Uh, so that's yeah. I go around and teach people how to do zazen, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really cool. And um, you know, you you have the book Hardcore Zen, um, and kind of that that kind of label and handle the podcast and the blog. 
Um, so where does what's that come from? I the hardcore Zen. Yeah, I, I think I think that title I, I like it and I continue to use it even though it kind of confuses people. I, I've had people uh, come after me going hardcore Zen. That's just a macho kind of thing, but it isn't. It isn't meant to be a description of the kind of Zen I teach. It was. It was actually the title. I, I had titled my first book, the, the one that got, came out as Hardcore Zen, I titled it Sit Down and Shut Up, which ended up being the title of my, the title I used for my second book. The publishers uh, didn't think that was a commercial title, and they came up with the title Hardcore Zen based on the fact that I had been in a hardcore punk band and I was now a Zen teacher. So they put the two words together and made it Hardcore Zen, which I really, I really liked, even though I can't take uh, credit for coming up with it. But it's yeah, it's not a description of the basically the type of Zen that I teach is very standard. Sometimes people <laughs> I mean, sometimes people even complain about that. They expect something you know really wild and and nutty, but it's really the standard form of of zazen that you would you would get from any sort of uh, teacher in the in the Soto lineage. Yeah. So if you're doing a retreat. Um say uh, just a few days or a week, what does it usually look like? Well, generally uh, we get up early in the morning. My, my teacher had us get up at 4.30 and I usually, uh, I usually uh, cut an hour off and make it 5.30. So we get up at 5.30 in the morning, we start sitting and, and basically most of the day is dedicated to sitting zazen. So, you know, you get up, you sit, uh, then you have breakfast and then you have a little break and you sit some more. And you have another little break and you sit some more. It's basically a lot of sitting. And uh, the, the version uh, we do is you, you sit uh, facing a wall. The, the Rinzai style of Zen, you sit facing away from the wall. So that's the, you know, if you ever walk into a temple, you can figure out which one it is if you see people sitting. Um, and basically, we're just sitting and staring at a wall all day. Uh, I do one or two lectures a day, depending on on how many days the retreat are. And I will also uh, offer what's called dokusan, which is which means you can come in if you want to sign up and come in and talk to me for a few minutes one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I'll do that as well. And that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty um, do you have, um, like when you, I guess when you're doing a retreat, you, you teach like I the main principles of Zen or at least your style of Zen? Yeah, I usually pick some text or something that that uh, strikes me as interesting, or I think people would like, and sort of read it and and uh, talk about it. I don't. I was actually when I was doing my because I, I do this YouTube channel that you mentioned, and as I was doing my one yesterday, I was thinking, yeah, this isn't too different from what I do when I do a lecture, uh, except they're shorter. I try to keep the the YouTube videos under twenty minutes. And uh, the lectures I do on a retreat are, are normally an hour. So, uh, so it's like, a, if you ever saw my YouTube channel, it's sort of like a longer version of that. I just pick out some, some text or something and, and talk about it. And then I take uh, questions from the audience, which is to me the most interesting part. Sometimes I feel like the, the initial part of me talking about something is just to warm the audience up to feel comfortable talking to me because that's where I find out what they are interested in and where they're at. So if I don't know where the audience is at, I, I, I don't know what, uh, what to teach them. So. Yeah. And for people listening, what are some of the, the fundamental principles of Zen? <laughs> you know, those are always, that's always a hard question to, to answer. Cause it's, it's so difficult. I mean, one of the fundamental principles is, well, I wrote a book called There Is No God and He Is Always With You, which is a quote from a, a Zen teacher in the Rinzai lineage, but I like that quote. And a lot of people will talk about Buddhism, which of which Zen is a, a branch of, of Buddhism, as a religion with no God. And I, I thought, well, that's not entirely incorrect, but I, I think it's, it's, it would also be just as correct to say there is a, a, a God in, in Buddhism, which is, I guess this is one of the fundamental principles of Buddhism right there is contradiction. 
rather than rather than reject contradiction, one of the things the the Zen form of Buddhism does is just embrace contradictions. Thing, which is why a lot of Zen philosophy sounds screwy to people because it'll say, uh, you know, it'll just say one thing and then say the opposite. You know, like there is no God and He is always with you. I thought was a good uh, short version of how to encapsulate the Zen view of God. Um, you know, it's more of a question than a than a statement. So there isn't there isn't a really a um, belief system attached to it. I mean, there you could argue that among Zen Buddhists there are certain common beliefs, but there is no idea that you must believe X Y Z in order to be a Zen Buddhist. There's you could believe whatever you want. It doesn't it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, if you want to believe that uh, Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son and, and, or if you want to believe that Muhammad is the prophet of, of, of Allah or whatever, you can, you can do that. There's no, from the Zen side of things, there's no argument. Maybe from the other religion side, there might yeah. be, an argument. but from the Zen side, it doesn't matter. Uh, so that's, that's also part of it. Uh, some people argue that it's more of a philosophy than a religion. I, I don't think it's a religion, but I don't think it's a philosophy either. I think the uh, I think the categories of philosophy and religion are are particular to Western uh, thought. So uh, you had this whole stream, you know, because the world was for centuries almost divided into two halves of humanity, you know, Eastern and Western. Now they've kind of come together. Uh, and, and you had that stream going on in the other side of the world where they didn't ever feel the need to make a distinction between philosophy and religion. So Zen Buddhism is in, in a lot of ways more like a philosophy in the Western sense, but there are practices to it that almost seem religious you know there are there are ceremonies and there are chants and there are things that you do as part of it because we recognize that these things are a way of embodying the philosophy uh, so the the philosophy isn't just something you hold in your head it's something you enact and uh, the the uh, ceremonies and things that that make it look like a religion are there as ways to embody the the philosophy and you could uh, conceivably replace those ceremonies with other ceremonies, uh, but nobody's really done a good job of that yet. And that's why, uh, for my part, I just stick with the traditional ceremonies of, uh, you know, the, the old ones that they've been doing for hundreds of years in, in the rest of the world in Asia. I don't yeah. know. Is that a good answer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and for people, for people interested in the Zen, um, they're just hearing about it, you know, where, where's a good place to start for people that are interested? Well, you mentioned Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu Suzuki. And that is, uh, that, that was the book that, uh, got me started. Well, actually I was, I more got started because of the teacher who I, I, I took a class at Kent State University called Zen Buddhism, which I kind of signed up for on a whim. <laughs> Not really a whim. I really wanted to know something about Eastern philosophy, but the only course on offer about Eastern philosophy at that time at Kent State University in Ohio was one called Zen Buddhism. So I ended up with that one. But anyway, that that was the, the book that he, uh, that Tim McCarthy, my first teacher taught out of. So I like that one. You know, I, I feel weird recommending my own books, but I, 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 I wouldn't keep writing them if I didn't think they were good. So, you know, I do think they're good. Yeah. So uh, Hardcore Zen is the, my first book, and that's the one most people start with. And my most recent book is called Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen. And part of the reason I wrote that book is because I thought I didn't, I had a chance to possibly revise Hardcore Zen when they decided to do like an anniversary, like a 10th anniversary or was it 15th? Maybe it's almost the 20th. Anyway, maybe it was 15th anniversary uh, reprint of it, but I decided it wasn't, it, it, I don't want to revise it because I always hated what uh, George Lucas did to Star Wars. Ruined <laughs> and I didn't ruin my book for people, but I also, yeah. there was a lot of things I would say differently. So letters from a letters to a dead friend about Zen is sort of meant as a kind of a companion to hardcore Zen in the sense that it's also a book which tries to introduce it to a person who has no idea what it is. And that the theme of that book was, um, 
a friend of mine who I'd known since the old punk rock days, he, he got cancer and died. And we'd been really close. And I realized that in all the years that we'd been close, I'd never talked to him about Zen. You know, it was just not, this is just not the thing that, uh, that, that isn't the, you know, we met over punk rock, you know, we didn't meet over Zen Buddhism. And, you know, living in the same small town in Ohio was our other thing we had in common. Uh, and, uh, and I regretted not, uh, not ever talking to him about it because I, I thought maybe it could have helped him. You know, he died uh, in his 40s, so, you know, quite young to die. And it might have helped him through that process to know a little bit about, uh, about that stuff. So the book it was sort of an idea to redress that and address that problem and then you know, kind of writing a, a series of letters to him that I'm sharing with the audience about uh, about Zen Buddhism. So, so him being a representative of a person who knew nothing about uh, about Zen, who had no no concept of what it was or why somebody like me would be involved in it. You know, somebody he knew as the bass player for Zero Defects would be involved in in Zen. Yeah. You know, why? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. So I think those are, you know, among my books, those are good places to start. Uh, yeah. And you can also just look and Google and see if there's a local uh, center in your, in your area and, and check them out. Some are, some places are better than others. <laughs> I'll, I'll just <laughs> say it that way, but, uh, but you might luck out and find one of the good ones. What, be. what, in your opinion, what makes a good one from a not so great one? Um, I think actually, I think most of the places that are operating these days are are basically good. Uh, the ones that go wrong are, are when sometimes the teacher gets a bit arrogant and and full of, I'll say himself, because it's usually not the female teachers that go this way, but uh, you know they get full of themselves and they and they become a bit culty. Um, you get, you get a lot of that, but I think a sincere, a, a center where you feel that the people are sincerely working towards something. The idea of a, of a teacher in Zen is that the teacher and the student are both working towards the same thing, which is beyond both of them. But the teacher has a bit of, I hate to even use the word authority, but I suppose you have to use the word authority, a bit of authority based on prior experience with it and, and, and being more deeply settled into it. So there is a, there is a, a little bit of a hierarchy, but it shouldn't be too much of a, a um, yeah. So one of the things Zen is famous for is, is this is another one of those contradictions is being almost obsessed with hierarchy, but, but also kind of having this idea that the hierarchy is just a framework which allows us to to practice yeah. so you know finding teachers who understand that is um to me that's one of the trickiest aspects and i don't want to bore the audience by going on too far but i i have trouble with that because uh because i don't see myself as an authority figure so i don't know how to how to uh, take that role of of, uh, of the teacher properly, I, I don't think. I think I do a bad job of that. Um, but um, but that's you know part of part of how you you know you you handle the practice and the teaching of it. I don't know what. I yeah, just no, said. no. I well, and you know what the thing is, um, you know, different teachers and different styles of teaching are going to appeal to different people. And I could definitely see where your style would be very appealing, especially, I mean, as a Westerner, um, you know, for me and, you know, you, you kind of, right. You were lived in the East, but you're from the West. The, the way that Westerners look at hierarchy is, especially in, in the 21st century is, is not as like, I don't know, I'm a millennial. So when, when I see a hierarchy, I'm just like, yeah, this is just, you know, this is just whatever. Yeah. You know? that, that is a, that is a, a kind of a problem and it's a it's a difficult one i think it's it's uh it's not just generational it's also very american because uh, uh, you know the united states was kind of this country that was founded on rejecting authority you know so it goes back to the founding of this country and in a lot of ways it's what's made america successful in things like business and and stuff like that was was this rejection of authority and, and rejection of tradition because we kind of we became this very innovative nation and and there's something uh, there's something important about that and there's something valuable about that but we have also in embracing that maybe too much we've lost the the ability 
often to learn from others. I, I, yeah. I see this in myself. You know, I had to kind of, when I lived in Japan, I had to learn uh, to deal with, with, you know, they have a very strong sense of tradition and hierarchy. And it was really difficult for me to, to deal with that. But once I got into it, I realized, oh, you can learn this way because you, you become more accepting of, you know, an older person's experience, for example. Um, and, and not just going, ah, old man, I'm going to do it the new way, you know? Yeah. Uh, which, which, like I say, there's value to that, but uh, we as Americans have kind of placed maybe too much uh, emphasis on that. And we, we, we're just, we want to break everything down before we even understand it. And that's, that's kind of a problem, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I wanted to talk about um, Satori and Kensho. So is our Satori and Kensho the same thing or are there nuances? Well, you know, I suppose there are nuances in, in the way they're used. Kensho means literally seeing the true nature. It, mean, it just means see nature, but it means seeing the true nature of things. It's sort of shortened. And satori is, satoru is actually a Japanese verb that's used to mean to, to comprehend or understand something. But when you use it in the Zen term, it means the sort of ultimate understanding. But it's it's usually understood or usually described as a as a moment when things all come together and and there's this uh, this great awakening experience and experiences like that do happen. Uh, the problem is it's also very easy to get stuck in those experiences, and after a while, my the best analogy I always come up with for this is it becomes like the, the guy who won the football game in his senior year of high school, you know, <laughs> and 30 years later, he's like over beers going, yeah, the great touchdown, glug, 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 you know, sometimes those uh, Satori or Kensho experiences become kind of the spiritual version of that. So even though the experiences really do happen and they can be important and transformative, it's also important to be able to let go of those experiences. So uh, my, my teacher used to, he didn't like words like Satori and Kensho. So the words Nishijima Roshi used were um, uh, solving philosophical problems. That's what he would call it. Oh, yeah. the experience of solving philosophical problems. <laughs> and I go, okay, yeah, I can see why you'd say it that way. <laughs> and um, as you know, just, just in, the, in the definition, I'm not sure, are you familiar with uh, Vipassana? Yeah, I know, I know what it is and a little bit about it, but I've never practiced in, in Vipassana. So. The, the only reason I'm asking is I'm, I'm asking, um, you know, if there's a correlation, because like Satori Kensho, um, the, the terminology sounds similar to Vipassana as far as the definition. I think like the definition of Vipassana is something like seeing clearly. Yeah. It's inside. along those lines. Yeah, sometimes they, they use the word insight. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is like that. And uh, my, my teacher used to say that sitting Zazen is enlightenment itself, but he also would say, if you pressed him on it, he'd say, yes, there's, there's that. And there's also something I, he would call second enlightenment. So the first enlightenment is just doing the practice. And the second enlightenment is that experience of solving philosophical problems. So there, there, if you do this practice for long enough, most people will have at least one moment of like almost blinding clarity. And it, it, it can, I, I wrote about it. Um, I wrote about my little moment of blinding clarity in Hardcore Zen. And then I wrote about it again in that other book I mentioned, There Is No God and He Is Always With You. Um, it, 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 was a, it was a moment in which after that I could never conceive of the world the same way again because it was so transformative and I and it became clear to me that that what I thought I understood about who I was and the world I was living in was completely wrong like just so completely wrong that there wasn't uh, there wasn't any any real connection between the truth and what I had learned was the truth all my life and uh, but then again you know you kind of uh, the, something I wrote about recently on my blog is this idea of you always end up back here, uh, which is the only way I know how to put it, but you always end up back here. You know, it, it's, uh, you, you have that experience of blinding clarity. And then after that, you're like, 
I'm back here where I was before. Uh, whereas, you know, you might expect that you'd go off somewhere else and you'd be this totally transformed person, but that isn't what happens. You're, you're kind of back in the same um, boat that you were in before, but you're seeing it very differently. And, and that does make a difference, but you still have all the same, you know, neuroses and fears and wants and, you know, whatever else, those, those, those don't, those don't suddenly go away and you don't suddenly become a morally perfect person or anything like that. Yeah. It's just, you can kind of see things differently. And when those neuroses and fears and desires and things come up, um, you, you end up with a little bit of a choice. You're like, well, I could give in to that, but I could also understand that that's just something my brain is doing. It's just going, you know, yeah, and, uh, and going, you got to have that thing. And you can go, yeah, I could go get that thing. Or I could just ignore that voice that says you got to have that thing. Um, yeah. So that's. Are you, are, are you familiar with the, the terminology of stream entry? No, I haven't heard that. Okay. So yeah, that's, uh, it's very interesting and it kind of is very related to what you're discussing, Satori, Kensho. Um, and so stream entry in, in the Theravadan Buddhist. Entry. Okay. Yeah. I, I misheard you. Yeah. I have heard oh. that, but keep going. Yeah. It's, it's the first kind of like major level of awakening of four, yeah. the four major awakenings, which, um, you know, the first one is the stream entry and it's kind of like the point of, it's the first, well, people can argue that there's subsets of that, like uh, the arising and passing, which is the, the first time you're kind of like transformed and you're like in the thing, but the stream entry is what's looked at as you're in the stream of awakening now and there's no going back. Yeah. Um, and it sounds similar to what you're saying, because again, once you're in the stream, you know, you're you're in it you know you can't look you can't unsee what you've seen yeah you yeah that's, that's kind of it yeah once once you kind of know once you once you kind of seen beyond the veil or whatever it is even if the veil comes back and covers you up again you're like i know that's just a veil <laughs> you know yeah yeah exactly exactly so is there is there like a final um satori or a final kensho you know, I really don't know. I, in, in Buddhist terms, there's this, uh, the idea of parinirvana, but parinirvana is also a synonym for death, you know? So, <laughs> so, so it's, it's the ultimate uh, nirvana is, is just dying, but, um, <laughs> you know, yes, I would think there is, but it's, it gets a bit tricky to say because, at this moment, the final awakening is already there. It's just that we're not noticing it. And yeah, the fact that we don't notice it is a real thing and, and, and can be a, a problem. And it's something that we address, but it's, it's, also, um, uh, it's also kind of an illusion itself. So there, there is, um, yeah, there, so there is, I, I imagine, a kind of final awakening, but I, I don't know. There, there's this idea of the, um, in Theravada Buddhism, the non-returner, you know, somebody who, uh, well, it gets, it gets into the idea of reincarnation and all that, which I tend to have a, a slightly wonky view on. But, um, but the idea of, of somebody who never returns to this world, because the, the, if, you, if you accept reincarnation, the idea is you keep uh, reincarnating as long as you keep getting it wrong. And at some point, once you get it right, you don't reincarnate anymore. But at the same time, I, I don't think, I, there is no you. <laughs> you know. So the, yeah. the problem with reincarnation and the, the, the argument I always have with it is it assumes a, a person who reincarnates. And if you, <clears throat> if you let go of that idea of there being any person who can reincarnate, then there, there isn't a reincarnation. Although I think maybe in conventional terms, you could uh, speak of it that way. Um, which is why whenever people press me on that question, I go, yeah, I sort of believe in it, but I sort of don't. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and maybe that's the realization, right? If there's no one to return, how could you return anyways? And yeah. it's, you know, 
it's an, it's like a, you know almost again like you said one of those contradictions that is just embraced uh, in the zen way yeah. um but you know it's funny the um what you mentioned the uh the kind of final awakening always being there and um you know if if you look at uh like the the yoga sutras of patanjali that kind of version of yoga yeah. the the and um the entire idea is that you're the the awakening, so to speak, is is already there, but you're just your practice is removing the obstructions from from what is what is innately there. Yeah, I mean that's that's the idea. Um, you know, and, and everything is a, is a metaphor, so you you kind of have to take any of these metaphors, even the good ones, you have to kind of take with a grain of salt. But but yeah, it is it is like uh, removing the obstructions. Uh, it's the um, the blinders that you have but then again probably somebody like dogen would say that the blinders are also part of your enlightenment so that's you know that's where you get to, that's where it all makes you crazy if you if you study this stuff too much <laughs> yeah 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 i know i, I know exactly because yeah you can get into the kind of i don't know uh you know contemplation of those kind of things but again that's almost like an exercise in some ways and um you know, but you do have realizations when, when contemplating things like that too. Yeah. Uh, would you, um, you know, getting back to the Vipassana aspect of it, it's often considered uh, like insight meditation or insight practice. Would you consider like Zazen a type of insight meditation? Well, you could, but it doesn't emphasize, <clears throat> it doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me. It doesn't emphasize insight as being the goal of the practice. So yeah. you're, not, you're not doing the practice in order to have insights. But if you, if you do the practice, insights are, are going to happen. And, and that, I think that's, one of the, that's kind of the special character of the Zen tradition is, is the idea that we, we admit that there is something called insight or enlightenment or, or something like that, but we also don't uh, emphasize it that strongly as a goal because the, because that actually ironically stands in your way. So if you have any, any idea about insight, usually that the idea will drive you to start comparing here's my experience now and here's what I think insight would be like and oh I'm not having that so I'm not doing it right so I got to push on and and get the insight and the Zen practice would is is encouraging you to let all of that go you know which is easier said than done and just understand the insight that you're already having you know here yeah. here is my moment of insight here's my moment of Zen you know um, let me just experience it clearly, or, or even if I'm not experiencing it clearly, let me be fully involved in the experience of not having clarity about it. That's yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Cause I know a lot of, I, there's different schools of Vipassana or insight meditation. And, but I think, yeah, a lot of the practice is, um, are trying to, you're trying to see reality as it is. Mm -hmm. And the, the practice for that is literally just observing the senses, basically, yeah. right? Anything that comes into your awareness, you watch it arise and pass. And that's pretty much the whole practice, you know? So, but they, you know, they say, you know, you, you, you refine that ability to, to see things as they are. And that's, I guess, why they call it insight. Um, but yeah, you actually, um, you talk about Dogen a lot and yeah. I, I love the stuff that you talk about on your channel. You read like these small passages is a lot of that, um, your, your exposure and influence of, of Dogen from your, the, the translation that your, your teacher did of the, the work. Yeah. 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 My, well, my first teacher, he never translated Dogen, but he would read from that what I mentioned, that older translation of Dogen uh, fairly frequently. So I was familiar with, uh, with Dogen before I met Nishijima Roshi, but him being uh, such a, you know, I mean, he made his name translating Dogen into English. So, so he was really steeped in it. And it, it, there, there's kind of a sense of, I, I think if you're, 
if you are lucky enough to find a, a teacher of a certain tradition or a certain path, the best thing you can do is just is just follow that and see where that leads you. Um, and then later on, if you want to go into the the side roads and, and look at what else is, is out there, I think that's um, that can also be useful. But I decided uh, that since Nishijima Roshi was my teacher and that he was, you know, you know, completely sold on Dogen, I'm just going to go uh, deep dive into Dogen. This is also kind of a Japanese thing. If you if you know anything about Japanese culture, one of the things about uh, about it is is uh, there are all these people who are super nerds on one, you know particular aspect of pop culture, for example, you know, there'll be the, the superest, I met so many Ultraman super nerds when I was over there. And I guess I'm sort of one of them, but not nearly to the level of, of, uh, of some of these people I met. So the same thing with Zen, I just went super nerdy with, uh, with Dogen. And in a sense, there's, there are a lot of other paths out there. But I, I think anybody who wants to follow one of those would be best served by just following that one, you know, and not getting not getting too sidetracked. That's one of the problems I see kind of in American approaches to Eastern spirituality is, and I, I'm guilty of this myself, you, you just want to know it all, you, you know, you want to know all the different versions of it. And, and some people never uh, settle on one thing. So what I do is I try to learn as much as I can about the other stuff, but only practice the one thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and just for people listening too, what was the, what was the name of that book? The Dogen book translation by your teacher? Oh, Shobo Genzo. So, uh, that's, it means treasury of the true Dharma eye. And, uh, and yeah, that was, uh, that was Dogen's masterwork, which he wrote in the 1200s. Um, and yeah, I've written, I wrote two books as one was called don't be a jerk. And the other was called, it came from beyond Zen. And actually sit down and shut up with it, which I mentioned. So three books that really just go into as much detail as I think uh, an average reader can handle uh, about Dogen. You know, I, I don't try to, I, I tried to approach it in a, a non-scholarly way because most of the books I've seen about Dogen, I actually enjoy them, but I can understand why regular people would just be totally turned off by them because it's a lot of, uh, scholarly jargon and a lot of you know stuff that really only interests people who are deeply deeply nerdy about it and i thought it was important to try to present dogen in a way that was a bit more accessible and didn't uh, and didn't burden the reader with too much specialized jargon and and stuff you know and and had a few jokes in it to, to try to lighten the mood sometimes so that's you know that was the point of those three books yeah we, we, we kind of touched on this a little, but um, what, so what is it, what's like the Zen view of enlightenment? Mm, well, that's hard to say. I mean, if you're talking about Soto, um, the, their, their view is that you can talk about an experience like Satori or Kensho if you want, but the real enlightenment is, is this moment right here and now is, is your enlightenment. But uh, there, there's also another another side to it that uh, is accessible if you become if you can become very very quiet in your in your mind you can start to notice things a little bit more clearly. But there isn't there isn't a like I said earlier that that moment that transforms everything. On the one hand, yes, there's there are sometimes moments that transform everything, but you don't want to make the mistake of of thinking that you figured it all out once you've had those one of those moments which is the pitfall almost everybody uh gets into i have gotten into it you know every teacher i've known has has had the experience of, of falling into that rabbit hole and um some people never get out of it and that that can be an issue <laughs> and um in in your your practice or school of zen is there the the zen koan or no well, it's approached differently. So yeah, there is. Dogen actually talks about koans all the time. 
there almost the entire Shogo Genzo is commentaries on on different koans, which are these old teaching stories. But then there's the other way of using koans, which is characteristic of Rinzai style Zen, in which a student is given a koan to solve, you know, in, in quotes. So you're you're supposed to um, present your answer to the koan to your teacher, or your your present your understanding of the koan to your teacher. And typically in the Soto school, we don't we don't do that kind of thing. It's more that you present the koan as a as a talking point and something to maybe contemplate the meaning of, but but you're not trying to. Um, to demonstrate it to your teacher that you've figured it out. That's not, that's not really our practice. Are, so are those the two schools you mentioned, are those the main schools of Zen or are there others too? Yeah, there's, there's basically uh, Rinzai and Soto. And then there's another school called Obaku, which still exists in a very uh, few temples in Japan. I think they. I think all three came from China originally, and I, I don't know what the situation is in China anymore, especially after the Cultural Revolution and everything else that happened over there. So, um, a lot of the Chinese Zen exists really in, only in Japan anymore or Korea, and and now in America and Europe too. But uh, but very little really exists in in China anymore. But yeah, those are the two main schools, and probably. In Japan, the Soto style is, there are more Soto temples than Rinzai temples, which is uh, kind of the opposite of what had been the case in China. In China, the Rinzai school was, was dominant. And then they both came to Japan. And somehow in Japan, the Soto school, which had been a min minority school in China, became the, the bigger one. And the Rinzai is, although it still exists, is the, is the smaller one. And is... Um... Is is Zen and, and Chan identical? Yeah, they're they're just different words. It's there's a uh, Chinese character that is pronounced uh, Chan in in Chinese, and Zen in Japanese, and it represents a, a Sanskrit word Dhyana, which is just it was just a character they created to represent this Indian word, which uh, Dhyana is usually translated as meditation, but also you can pronounce it Jhana, or uh, which uh, in which case it tends to refer to um, something a little bit more special than just meditation, like uh, you know, concentration. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Dogen actually hated uh, the, the word Zen was in use in his time 800 years ago, but he didn't like it. And he said that his, what he taught was not Zen. Um, and my teacher actually followed that because he was such a Dogen nerd that he didn't like calling it Zen either. But I realized once I got back to America and I was teaching it, you can't avoid you can't avoid that word because you have to you have to describe it in you know in ways that people can understand. But he thought there should be Dogen thought there should be one Buddhism, and that the only true Buddhism was Zen Buddhism. Of course. You know, we have this attitude in, in, in the U.S. where if you say something like that, you sound like a bigot or something like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I don't I don't say it that way. But but the tradition is 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 to express it that way. So, yeah, it is the same. It is the, the Chan and, and Zen is the same thing, basically. Yeah. And the, the, so he said it, what he's teaching is not Zen. Did he say what he is teaching? Did he then go follow up with that? Well, he, he would say it was it was only Buddhism. The word bukyo is the Japanese word, and bukyo means the teachings of Buddha. Um, so when we say the word the word, this is a the another problem of, of concepts east and west because we have a a cons a Western concept Buddhism, and actually if you look into it, although these days uh, most people in Asia also have adopted that uh, way of looking at it up until the, the maybe the 19th century, nobody in Asia looked at it that way. Uh, the, there was the teachings of Buddha. Um, and it wasn't exactly a religion. This is what I was kind of talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, and, and that's what Dogen said that he taught. It was Bukyo, the teachings of Buddha. And the argument is that the, the real thing that the, the historical Buddha taught was this meditation practice. And that's what we should be focused on and 
that there is a there is a single stream of of correct understanding of this this is where you know you get into arguments because people will say well no this is the correct stream of understanding and you know people argue about that stuff but you know there's this idea of a lineage an unbroken lineage of teachers who who got it right um and uh yeah something like that <laughs> yeah 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 and actually i had um like early, you know, early on many years ago, I practiced Chinese martial arts just for a short period of time. And that's how I got introduced to Chan. Mm -hmm. And, um, and again, yeah, they use the, the, the name Bodhidharma, which I've heard you use. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm familiar with that from, cause you know, they have the Shaolin have, have their interpretation of how the Buddha came to be. Yeah. And, uh, they call him the Bodhidharma and, uh, well, Bodhidharma so, was supposedly the guy who brought uh, the Zen stream of Buddhism to China, but he also established a temple called the Shaolin Temple, and they were the ones who basically created the martial arts. I don't think Bodhidharma is usually thought of as being involved in that, but it was something that, that came about as a development of, of that temple and how they were going to deal with the real world problems of, of having to defend themselves, you know? So they had this idea of, um, you know, ethics and morality and not harming, you know, anyone, but they also didn't want all their stuff to get stolen and their temples to get ransacked by, by bandits and, and bad guys. So they, the, this is the story that's told at least in Zen. The martial arts were developed as a way to keep the Buddhist teachings of ethics while also being able to uh, to defend yourself in a practical way if, if you were attacked or something. That's the way. Yeah. There's actually there's an excellent book I would recommend. And again, I guess this is this is just one perspective of it, uh, but it's called the Shaolin Grandmaster Text. Mm. And a super cool book if you're interested in martial arts and or uh, Zen uh, and Chan, and uh, they they also explain how they're in the in the Shaolin, it's the Zen and Chan, but there's a there's a tint of Taoism, yeah, and and that's why they have the Qigong and Tai Chi, yeah, and mixed in there with it. So there, it's really um, I thought it was really cool and it vibed with me because I like the physical aspect of it. So qigong and, and tai chi are things that i appreciate mm -hmm. um but i, I want to shift gears here a little um you again you have a really awesome youtube channel and you get into a whole bunch of cool topics and for people listening to this i might know i have another channel called engaging the phenomenon which deals primarily with ufos um so you, you recently made a, a video on, on Jacques Vallée and UFOs. Yeah. So you're somebody who's who's a Zen master teacher who's familiar with UFOs. So yeah. what is what is what's your view on UFOs in general? Let's start there. It's always a dangerous topic because, well, as you know, if you if you studied it, it's it's easy to get. You know, there's a there's a the sense of um, Jacques Vallée talks about it in his book. If you study these things, uh, there's a there's a real prejudice against it you know that's crazy stuff you know that's paranormal and all that I, I think there must be uh, something to the phenomenon and it's something I was interested in as a kid long before I got interested in zen you know I, I, I loved all the the science fiction movies and and stuff and it got me into to studying um, UFO books I remember being in a teenager and reading a bunch of those uh, you know whatever I could find about UFOs and and, and getting really interested in it. And, I, and I've maintained that interest. I, I think there, there is something out there, you know, and obviously if you, if you consider the size of the, the physical universe, there's gotta be uh, some other forms of intelligence. This can't have happened just once. Uh, I, I think most, most people who, most people who think about the topic would agree with that. The disagreement comes in whether whatever is out there would be able to uh, would have any interest in or would be even able to communicate with us it might be that whoever's out there would be so far away and it, maybe it's such a rare phenomenon to to develop intelligence like we have that uh, that we would never come in contact with each other that's one of the the theories um because of trash truck um there's a form of intelligence out there um 
So I think there's that. And I think actually, if you look at it from the Buddhist perspective, one of the books I was looking at recently was talking about, um, sorry, I'm going to try to talk over the trash guy, um, was talking about the, um, hold on, close the windows. So I was looking at this book recently that was about um, how different religions might deal with, uh, say, we had un unquestionable evidence of aliens uh, contact. And uh, one of the things the book said, which I think is right, is that it wouldn't really phase, probably wouldn't really phase the Buddhists that much. Because if you look at Buddhist um, cosmology and mythology, there is a place for aliens in it. You know, they even did a, a, a a couple of episodes of Ancient Aliens, the, the TV show, about the, the um, if you look at the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures, there are ways to interpret them that, that you know, sound like UFO encounters. You know, there's plenty of stuff in there. And, and in traditional, even traditional Buddhist literature beyond the Ancient Aliens interpretation of it, uh, would say that there are, there are beings who exist in, in higher realms, you know, and whether higher could be physically higher, like up in the sky, like in outer space, or or conceptually higher, like a, another sort of dimension beyond us. Um, you know, you could argue what what it means, but there is a place for that. And I, I personally haven't encountered any of these uh, higher intelligences, uh, but um, I have no trouble believing. Uh, that that people have uh, and that it, that it's possible. The other thing though about Buddhism, which is interesting in in that aspect, is they always uh, say that the human human beings are the high are even though they they talk about higher realms, the human beings are in the best realm, which is to say that that the higher realms are actually not as good for awakening in the Buddhist sense because everything is too good there. So if you could imagine, uh, if you could imagine a society that's a million years advanced from human society where you could basically fulfill all your, your desires, you know, with, with a touch of a button or something like that, uh, somebody who lived in a society like that would have very little interest in spiritual practice. And so it's considered to be better to, uh, to be born in the human realm. Uh, so maybe if we uh, meet the aliens, we'll end up teaching them. Maybe, maybe the aliens are coming to learn from us. That's one of my <laughs> theories. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a fascinating uh, perspective on that. I think it's unique and, um, Again, there's a lot to be said of that. You know, if you're able to have anything you want whenever you want it or have all these advanced technologies, you may not even have the inclination to, yeah, to try to so-called awaken. Yeah. Um, so I understand that. And um, what, what um, did you notice when like the whole uh, December 2017 uh, Tic Tac and, you know, the, the big A-tip story broke? Oh yeah, yeah, I was I was watching that with great interest, and that uh, I actually was working. We talked about this before we started the podcast. I was working on a book about that subject, sort of a Zen approach to UFOs, and I I may still uh, I I I play around with that book every every couple of weeks and and see if I can get anywhere with it. But I'd been working on that, and when that stuff broke, I thought, oh, that's interesting because the finally the uh, you know the the idea of the the official, you know, the official story, the government story, changing to the point where they're admitting, yeah, there is something to all of this. I think that's a huge shift because uh, as Jacques Vallée points out in his book, one of the problems with studying any of this, and I mentioned it just a minute ago, is that you immediately sound like an, an idiot to a lot of people. Um, but I, I think there's good reason to think that there is that there is something out there, uh, some sort of other intelligence that it seems to be interacting with human beings in a way that's very um, strange. <laughs> High strangeness, yeah. I guess, is the term. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes used. Yeah, and and that and that's kind of beyond our 
our normal way of understanding things. Yeah, and now you have again, like you said, the the uh, the United States government is doing a 180 on this and saying, yeah, it looks like there's something real about this. So the, the stigma is is dissolving as we know it, and now it's not a the idea of it being a weird, strange thing to look at is is dissipating. Yeah. Yeah. And that might be a, a, like a generational thing. I mean, you, you've got so many people who've grown up on Star Trek and, you know, Star Wars is not exactly. E.T. Yeah. Yeah. E.T. and all that stuff. So, so we've, we've seen it, we're familiar with it and people are sort of inclined uh, to believe it. Belief is one of the things, I mean, belief is one of the things as a, as a Buddhist, we get into this idea of, of what is the, what is the utility and, and meaning of belief. And so, um, so a lot, a lot depends on what human beings are willing to believe is true or willing to believe is at least possible. And that will shift our, our um, way of uh, dealing with any specific phenomenon. So uh, I think it's good. You know, I, I, when I get into UFOs, though, I started getting really attracted to the weirdest stories because I, I think that's something Jacques Vallée points out that that uh, he talks about how these stories are so absurd my favorite absurd UFO yeah. story which yeah. you probably know about is the uh, the guy in Wisconsin who the aliens came down and gave him pancakes do you know this yeah story? yeah I, mean, I think 1960 um and and you know, it's such a bizarre story. Basically, this UFO comes and descends on this guy's house and he's like a chicken farmer, you know, he's like, you know, not very educated. And the aliens come out and they give him three pancakes and then go away. And, uh, and then he goes and tries to get the FBI to look at his pancakes and they go, well, these are just ordinary pancakes and, and they think he's a, a screwball, but, but he never recanted his story. And, uh, and I think something really did happen to that guy. And I think somebody, you know, I don't know who, really did give him pancakes. He had, he had a very strange encounter. But that's just, you know, that's part of the absurdity of it. Valet points out that, that uh, maybe, maybe part of the operating, you know, of, of this, uh, of whatever this intelligence is, is that, that they do things that are deliberately absurd for reasons that, you know, don't make any sense at all to, to us, but may make sense, you know, in some way to whatever they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he often, <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of times he talks about the almost like social impact to affect the subconscious of the collective yeah. uh, population. And, and he's referred to it sometimes as a thermostat of human consciousness um, on one level. So there's, there's a, a lot of interpretations and and then again you know you have cases where there's just physical you know alleged physical you know like the roswell right yeah. so um there's a consciousness aspect but there's also the physical aspect where you know you have the atip thing going on and they have recording they have the the videos of some of these objects with radar tracking and stuff um but again it's yeah it's just one of those things it's like just beyond our understanding, it seems, but yeah. I don't know. It looks like we're entering a time where at least we'll perceivably understand it better. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I, I really appreciate you as um, a Zen dude talking about that openly on your channel. Uh, you know, I, I really respect that. Um, do, do you speak to other like Zen teachers or anything about it or does it ever come up? No, I, I can't, I'm trying to think I did. Uh, there was one guy, God, who was it? Um, I haven't talked to him for a while, but he was a student of, uh, of my first teacher's teacher. And uh, he's the only other Zen teacher. I can't even come up with his name right now. Um, but uh, he's the only other Zen teacher I've ever met. And I didn't even meet him in person. We, we kind of had some Skype conversations or something about five years ago. Um, he's the only other Zen teacher I, I encountered who was into that um, that stuff, um, you know, most, most Zen teachers, they're, they're just like most people, they, they kind of go, oh yeah, whatever, you know, this is, uh, this is goofy science fiction stuff. And maybe in a sense it is, but, um, but there's also something, uh, there's something beyond that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I recently had uh, Vince Valkyrie Horn on and uh, Daniel Ingram and we, you know, they were pretty open about the idea and, and Vince Horn was like, yeah, well, how come no, Buddhist teachers are talking about this. It's like right out 
in the public and in the open now, you know, it's not even like, you know, it's, it's being, it's on the news like regularly. And uh, I don't know if you saw, but the, the chief of NASA was recently saying, yeah, UFOs are real. I, I, I received a, uh, an official briefing, a classified briefing on the armed service committee. So, you know, and he's, he's, they said, oh, well, what do you think it is? You think it's drones or something? And he's like, and he's inferring that it's probably some other intelligence basically. So that's when you have the chief of NASA, the mm. current chief of NASA making those kind of statements. It is interesting. You know? I, I can see why there's a lot at stake. I mean, my, my own take on the government secrecy about it is probably has more to do with the government and military. They don't know what it is, you know? Right. Right. It's, you know, yeah. I mean, there's all the people who believe, oh, we've got secret treaties with the aliens and such. I, I think that's highly unlikely. I think they I think the problem is that the military doesn't know what it is. And if they would admit that there's something powerful out there that they don't know what it is, well, that that's going to erode confidence in, in the military. Like, oh, you mean there's there's beings out there that could, you know, take over our planet and you don't know what to do about it. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's been uh, great talking with you, Brad. Um, you're such a cool dude. I love your your work. I love your channel. I suggest everybody go check your work out. And uh, where where could everybody find your work? Well, uh, the YouTube channel is just uh, YouTube.com/slash/hardcore-zen. Uh, so I do I do new video every. every uh, three times a week. Uh, I have a podcast, which is the Hardcore Zen podcast, and it's on all the main, I, I find it on Spotify, but it's on all the podcast platforms. And then I have a blog, which is uh, hardcorezen.info. And if you go there, uh, it has connect, uh, uh, what do you, what do you call it? Uh, links to everything else. So, so that's, a, that's a good place. So hardcorezen.info has links to, to the YouTube channel and the, the podcast and everything else. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you have all the Godzilla stuff. I'm like a, I'm like a Dragon Ball nerd. So I oh. love Dragon Ball Z and all that stuff. I, today is like one of the only days I'm not wearing a Dragon Ball Z shirt. Oh. <laughs> um, but uh, again, I greatly appreciate your time. I appreciate your work and what you do. Um, do you have any kind of like parting words to the audience? Anything? <laughs> no, anything. I can't, I can't think of anything. I mean, I, the, what I say at the end of my YouTube videos is have a good time all the time which is uh, I, I love that though that's really cool it comes from spinal tap i think it's the last line in the movie this is spinal tap somebody says what's your philosophy what to i think the keyboard player and he says have a good time all the time yeah <laughs> i just love yeah that. <laughs> well again i appreciate your time and everybody go check out brad's stuff and i hope to speak to you again soon brad yeah thanks take care